many of our podcast listeners might be aware that just after he detonated the atomic bomb that he helped create, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita by saying, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Um, well, hold my beer. Because I'm talking to Daniel Pollock-Pelsner today, the professor of English at Linfield College in Oregon, and a contributing writer to the New Yorker and Atlantic magazines, who just recently wrote an article for the New York Times in which he suggests that Mary Poppins might be a troublesome character even more than we know. Is... Is that a fair way to sum up your crimes against humanity, Daniel? <laughs> a weapon of mass destruction in literary critical form? God, I hope not, Austin. I love Mary Poppins. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 642, Mary Poppins' Kerfuffle. Daniel Pollock Pelsner, a professor of English at Linfield College and regular contributor to the New Yorker and Atlantic magazines, wrote an article for the New York Times back in January 2019 about the problematic racist imagery in both the 1964 and 2018 Mary Poppins films from Disney. The article sparked a huge outcry and backlash, resulting in calls for Daniel's dismissal and threats to him and his family. So I'm extraordinarily grateful to him for not only the article itself, but for speaking with me about how the article came to be and how he's been dealing with its unexpected response. I love watching the movies with my kids. We've sung the songs together. I am a big fan. Uh, but I will say upon re-watching the first movie in preparation to go see the new movie at Christmas, I don't know if your kids are like this. Mine love to watch the first 30 minutes of anything, and we watch the first 30 minutes over and over again. Right. I'd never seen the second half of the movie since I was a kid. Oh. So we were watching it together, and then all of a sudden, there are these um, chimney sweeps with, uh, you know, soot over their faces, dancing on the rooftop, and the, the neighbor says, we're being attacked by Hottentots, and starts firing a cannon at them. And I was thinking, ha, I don't remember this from my childhood. <laughs> What's going on? And then I started looking back at the books on which the movies were based and finding lots of stuff that I hadn't recalled. And, you know, it's what I teach my students to do. When you find something that confuses you, you ask a question and you try to learn more about it. Well, and anybody who knows anything about Mary Poppins, the character, or indeed saw Saving Mr. Banks, the movie mm -hmm. with Tom Hanks and, and, and Emma Thompson, knows that... Both the character of Mary and P.L. Travers, the lady who created her, are both incredibly complicated, to use a nice word, uh, old-fashioned women of a certain time who were racist and problematic and made no sort of bones about it. And she was writing in the 1930s and the 1940s when blackface was still a thing and when we when the tropes of minstrelsy were still part of entertainment so i read your article and i went huh i knew some of this but i didn't know all of it uh, and i find it fascinating i find i mean i find that kind of exploration and depth into 
popular culture just fascinating. But was it, what was even more fascinating and head-spinning was the reaction your article caused. And we're only talking now, oh, maybe six weeks after the article came out, because you said three weeks ago, I don't think I want to talk about this. I need to let it die down because the reaction was so heated and problematic. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah. Well, I, I, I um, love it when I meet readers like you, Austin, who share that curiosity. And I think I came into this story thinking like you did. These were stereotypes from the 1930s. Uh, we're not surprised, perhaps, to encounter them in the work of P.L. Travers any more than we are to encounter them in The Great Gatsby, say. The surprise to me was that the new movie in December 2018 would be reviving these stereotypes and going back even to parts of the original books that P.L. Travers herself edited out. So I thought, ah, you know, we think of blackface as something in the past. I was interested in how it persists into the present in not obvious ways, but ways that still condition what we think of as fun in entertainment. So that's what I thought I was doing. And um, I, I will say my wife, who is much more prescient and perceptive than I, said, you know, you're not going to make anybody happy with this piece. And, uh, and she was absolutely right. I, I thought, naively, you know, everybody likes to learn more about things they love. Now that I think about it more, of course nobody wants to hear that things that they love are troubling and problematic, and, and I don't either. Um, but I will say, I was not prepared to be getting, I don't know, 200 messages and emails and voicemails a day or so telling me to kill myself, uh, threatening my wife and kids. And um, my favorite, I think, was the fantasy that Julie Andrews would spit in my face, um, which I'll admit is a fantasy I've entertained as well, but <laughs> seems to me an insult to her memory. <laughs> well, and yeah, I mean, this is this is the only area in which um, you will upset me, is that if you, you have somehow made Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews unhappy, then you and I are having troubles, oh, mister. That would be a crime of the first order. No, they're, they're fabulous performers, and um, like uh, Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda, whom I adore and love seeing in the present, they're, they're performing a script that was written for them. And I think really the question is, why does Disney keep going back to the minstrel tropes that you know, are pretty well established as the founding of Mickey Mouse as an icon are all over the 1930s uh, Mickey Mouse melodrama where Mickey Mouse actually puts on blackface to play a character in Uncle Tom's Cabin. We all know about the Jim Crow character in Dumbo who's called Jim Crow. Yeah. We all know about you know, what makes the red man red in, in Peter Pan. But the mystery to me is why, why in 2018 they're still trotting out these stereotypes again. Well, and I think this is the value of the article. Um, I, 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 I have to think that they didn't really think about it. They didn't know, even, or if they knew, they didn't, you know, they didn't think about it. It just was like a thing. Oh, this was funny. I have never considered the possibly racist origins of these <laughs> sorts of comic tropes. I mean, I, 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 I can't imagine that there are current artists at Disney who are going, you know what we'll do is we'll sneak some blackface in. <laughs> right? I mean, do you think? God, I, I hope you're right. And I, I will admit I'm, I'm arguing against my own economic interest here because I, for my bar mitzvah, a cousin who lives in Orange County gave me a share of Walt Disney stock which nets me about seven cents a year, uh, although my folks won't mail the check to me because it's less valuable than the stamp they'd have to put on the envelope. So I may, I may be depreciating my own investments here. 
But I think that's just, if I were to project or to speculate, I think that's just how they see topsy-turvy entertainment working. So the whole fun of Mary Poppins is that Dick Van Dyke is both the chimney sweep and the head of the bank. It's about um, an American studio making fun of British class pretensions and a seemingly proper nanny who allows uh, kids to indulge in holiday entertainment where everything turns upside down. And the mechanism through which they express that kind of upside down holiday play is ethnic caricature. And my, uh, I'll say my editor and I went back and forth about the conclusion of my article, which talks about a character named Topsy in the, in the new movie. And Topsy, of course, is the, the crazy piccaninny stereotype, the black slave child who, who cavorts even as she uh, you know, suffers in Uncle Tom's cabin. Um, and so I was surprised that the character that Meryl Streep plays in the new movie, who's also crazily dressed with, with uh, uh, weird hair and speaks in an ethnic accent, is named Topsy. And we discussed, is that just a coincidence? Uh, sure, there's a character named Topsy in the books who's different than the one Street portrays. But it seems to me, in 2018, could you imagine creating a subservient black servant character and calling him Uncle Tom and just saying, well, you know, funny, I never thought about the resonances. So whether they're conscious or not, I think they just so seeped into the way that we perceive entertainment that they become kind of instinctive. Hi, I'm Roy Conley from Disney Animation Studios, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. This Friday and Saturday night, April 5th and 6th, we'll be giving two performances of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged in Los Angeles at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, California. Then next week, our 2019 tour of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged revised continues with performances in Appleton, Wisconsin, Lubbock, Texas, Amherst, Massachusetts, Flint, Michigan, River Forest and Effingham, Illinois, Meridian, Kansas, and a week at the Virginia Arts Festival in Norfolk, Virginia. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with professor and surprisingly controversial author Daniel Pollock Pelsner. So you talked about uh, the origins of the name Topsy, and, mm-hmm. and and I think yes, we know. Oh, Uncle Tom, you can't call a character Uncle Tom anymore. But mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing a lot of people did, don't know the origins of Topsy. I didn't know hot and tots. I didn't, which is a, a South African term of, de- of de- degradation, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those terms that starts out descriptive, but in an imperialist context. So I believe it's the Dutch term for Khoisan uh, people in South Africa, and then becomes a kind of generic insult for uh, black, uh, sub-Saharan African uh, black people in the 19th and 20th century. Right. So when I hear Admiral Boom saying it in Mary Poppins, I just go, oh, he's he's just being an old poop and that's an old 19th, fashion 19th century word that I don't know. And when yeah. the chimney sweeps are, atta- are attacking Cherry Tree Lane, uh, right. to me it always read as, as at worst, classist. Uh-huh. You know, the, oh, the, the, the what, the, 
the workers are rebelling against the, yes. the money, the money <laughs> classes. And I think it does work in that way. But this mm-hmm. is the value. This is the value of the scholarship that you're bringing out. Was it? <laughs> Now we are forced to confront, damn you, Daniel. Mm. We are forced to confront, oh, shit, some of these. <laughs> this is kind of more problematic than I thought about. Well, I, and I think you're absolutely right, Austin. It is about class, and that's the, that's the fun of the scene, is we're making fun of the Admiral. Uh, but the way the actual filmmaking works is we have a point-of-view shot from the Admiral's perspective through his spyglass looking at these dancing figures, and they look like, uh, you know, what, what uh, Marlowe would see on the banks of the Congo in, in Heart of Darkness, say. And the joke, as I understand it, is that we know they're, re- they're not really uh, black people dancing. They're really white people who look like black people dancing. And um, this, this isn't an argument original to me about the history of minstrelsy, but uh, Eric Lott, in his groundbreaking book, Love and Theft, uh, says that minstrelsy in America has always been class-based and has always been a way that working classes made fun of their uh, their elite masters by uh, adopting the pose of black dancers. And indeed, um, Lott and others have documented that when the first uh, white blackface minstrels uh, like Daddy Rice brought uh, the dance Jump Jim Crow to England in the 1840s, it was most popular with chimney sweeps. And the, the, his manager said they started jumping Jim Crow from morning to night because it was a way of making fun of their employers and kind of cavorting against this discipline of work that Mr. Banks represents in the film. So it's, it's, I think his race is the means through which this class critique is expressed. But as you point out, we, something we might want to rethink. What are the other, again, gobsmacking, amazing things about this is that Part of the reaction to your article has been uh, my friend Katie Reedy pointed out to me, who, mm. um, who knew you at Harvard, but I don't think you knew, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> pointed out, she, went, she texted me and said, oh my God, he's on an alt-right professor watch list. And that's scary. Oh, well, I, I will admit that's a badge of pride for me. I've, I've always worried that my scholarship hasn't been quite leftist enough. And so my grandma, who was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, uh, I think would finally be proud of me <laughs> to be on that list. And I'm in uh, some very good company. Uh, sure, it has a chilling effect on academic scholarship. And my, the president of my college has been getting emails daily to fire me. And it's uh, never made me more grateful than tenure. And, and I'll, I'll say there are lots of scholars who have been going to the mat on these issues for a lot longer than I have, and I'm building on the work of many of them, and I, I'm coming to this debate with a lot of privilege that insulates me from these kind of uh, attacks that, that, I'm, that I'm grateful for, but I, but I recognize that not everybody has, and so I think it's sort of, it's, it's on all of us, but especially those of us who have more secure positions to speak up in defense of people who get attacked or put on these watch lists in an effect, uh, attempt to try to silence their, their speech. Um, and it is, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it was just so unnerving or unsettling to see the kind of venom and vitriol. I mean, I suppose if you were to design a caricature of the kind of professor who would write this argument, maybe a white Jewish uh, liberal arts professor in the gender studies program like me is the guy you would come up with. Grandson but, of a card-carrying communist. Exactly. I'll, I'll dig the hole a little deeper. But to hear people say, just look at his last name and you know everything you need to know about him um, uh, was, was uh, disheartening. 
Well, I can imagine. I can. I can only imagine. You know, uh, uh, speaking to you now as Austin Kent Titchener the Third, the descendant of Puritans. <laughs> um, uh, um, well, and and you and you certainly have the the awesome power of the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast in your corner oh, <laughs> as a supporter <laughs> of your academic of your freedom and inquiry um, the other thing i'd noticed was that you, you snopes.com was was forced to you know analyze whether you had actually <laughs> labeled Mary Poppins a racist right there was this kind of like is this a hoax is this a thing from the onion and and I'll admit, when I first heard that hot and tot line that you mentioned, Austin, and I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what was going on, I Googled just to see, have other people written about this? And um, the first thing that popped up was a white nationalist site that had posted that scene and said, look, uh, Mary Poppins has this racial hierarchy. And there were all of these white nationalists posting saying, wow, I always loved Mary Poppins, but now I love it even more. Ugh. And so I thought, don't, you don't have to take it from me that this is a movie about racial hierarchy take it from the white nationalists. Well, and this is the other thing that is amazing me, is that so much of this is amazing me, is that uh, I, uh, I mentioned to a dinner table of uh, progressive friends uh, mm -hmm. that I was going to be talking to you this week, and they went, who's mm -hmm. he? I said, he wrote the article about the, and I just mentioned it, and three incredibly progressive people went, oh, oh, oh well, that's ridiculous, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, "Did you read it?" No, I don't need to read that. that, that. <laughs> and, and oh, and I well, a couple of things occurred to me. One is that well, if you, if you um, are on the same side as uh, alt right groups, then maybe that's not uh, <laughs> more. Maybe that's a thing yet. you should look at. But also, we're also the the documentary of about Michael Jackson leaving Neverland has just mm. aired this week, mm -hmm. and I see people jumping through so many hoops to find the nuance and the, make excuses for, well, it's complicated, it's complicated. Nuance and complicated uh, <laughs> reasoning that they're not willing to give to your article about Mary Poppins. <laughs> well, I think there is that kind of defensiveness about things that we love, especially from our childhood. And I have a brilliant colleague at Reed uh, College, Sarah Wagner-McCourt, who gave me this interpretation of, of the response that was about miscegenation anxiety, that I had taken this treasured uh, white cultural object from people's childhoods and, and besmirched the, the beautiful white female nanny who was the guardian of childhood innocence and introduced the specter of race into it. And um, I get that it's, it's certainly easier to lash out at the at the liberal academic with a funny nose who sees racism everywhere than it is to uh, confront or start to interrogate the history of white supremacy that runs through popular entertainment. And maybe there's a little bit of displacement that this was cresting at the same time as, of course, the blackface revelations out of Virginia and elsewhere. And maybe it's easier to defend Mary Poppins than to defend those figures. Uh, there was also a lot of class-based critique only an idiot like me who's never worked a day in his life wouldn't know that chimney sweeps got soot on their face um so so i i recognize the impulse where that's coming from what what really surprises me though austin is um there have been times when i've been worried about articles that i've written i wrote a piece about steve bannon just after the presidential election he'd done a hip-hop adaptation of coriolanus set in la after the rodney king verdict and i wrote this thing for the new york times saying 
Donald Trump's chief strategist has a vision of racial conflict engulfing America through misogynist violence. Twitter said, yawn. Then I read a piece saying, hey, Mary Poppins is bound up in a history of uh, blackface entertainment, and suddenly I am, you know, the face of academic Satan. So uh, it is interesting what, what really <laughs> pushes people's buttons. I, I think that the, the, it's possible that the headline and the photo that the Times chose did not help because it <laughs> looks as if literally Mary Poppins is blacking up. Which, well, she does in the movie. Yeah, I know. She takes she, out her comeback game. But you're right. I don't. I mean, it's a it's a thing that you probably know. Writers don't choose their headlines. They don't choose their photos. Um, but it. But I guess the other thing was that it it, it got picked up by the British tabloids, yeah. and it made the rounds there, and then it came back to conservative outlets in the U.S. So in a way, the kind of transatlantic circulation of cultural forms, to use a, a, a inexcusable academic expression, that I was tracing with Minsk from the 1840s to the present was being kind of reenacted in the reception of the article when it would end up finally back from the Daily Mail to People.com and USA Today. And it seems like people are def uh, are um, defending their right to use the term Hottentot. Uh, well, if that's, if that's the uh, hill they want to die on, then, well, then what's, go for it. What's next for you? You're not, please tell me you're not going to tell us that my favorite fried chicken-loving colonel is based on some ancient racist trope. Uh, Post-Green Book's Oscar win, there's been plenty of material on the history of fried chicken in American culture. Um, I, uh, well, what I like to do after I write a piece that's kind of uh, casting a skeptical eye at things we love, I love to do a few pieces that champion artists whom I really admire. So I'm doing a profile for The New Yorker of Mary Catherine Nagel, a fabulous Cherokee playwright and lawyer who uh, sees theater as a way of restoring Native American sovereignty. Uh, and she's got a great new play, Crossing Minnesota, that's coming up. And uh, I'm doing a piece on Taylor Mack's sequel to Titus Andronicus called Gary, a comedy starring Nathan Lane. And uh, I, love, I love, as you do, I know, Shakespeare rewrites, playing with Shakespeare, messing with Shakespeare, turning tragedy into comedy. So I'm excited to write about uh, that. And then, um, then I do have a few more uh, um, Daniel Ruins Everything pieces in the pipeline. <laughs> but those are still in development. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your revelatory cultural expose via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to Not a Hot and Tot. Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, and Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Alan Escobar. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Roy Connolly from Disney Animation Studios, who spoke with us on the podcast about his 2010 animated feature, Tangled, and is the Oscar winning producer of the best animated feature, Big Hero 6. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 642 1926ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I'm fanboying out, Austin, seeing you here because I used to do the complete works of William Shakespeare Bridge in high school. I hope legally, but for, I'm sure, one of many kids across the country in the 90s who was 
doing the one-man version of the three-man show, but the Titus Andronicus cooking show was my calling card. And I was just, my students, I think, thought I was almost cool by sharing that with them. And then they brought in the Othello rap, and we were geeking out over it. So I'm a great admirer of your and your colleagues' work. Well, that's great to hear. And since I'm not one of the authors of the complete works, I can say with complete honesty, that thing is a is a modern chestnut. It's the new arsenic <laughs> and old lace and Harvey. Yes, perfect. Right, greater tuna of Stratford upon Avon. Right, it's it's such a classic. People are kids, high school, college kids are wetting their teeth on the complete works of Shakespeare, which I think is an amazing legacy. I'm proud to be part of it. Absolutely, it's great, and I think parody should always precede the uh, you know sanctimony. I guess. Uh, whatever well, literary history repeats itself as uh, first as farce and then as tragedy. <laughs> oh, very good. I like that. Well, and I and I'm firmly of the belief that uh, uh, they they parody celebra- parody and celebration can live side by side. Yes, absolutely. In, uh, in fact, one is probably required to have the other. Um, right, right. Who would give up Pyramus and Thisbe to get Romeo and Juliet? Indeed. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.